This is the last Sunday after Pentecost in the Lutheran Church, in the Episcopal Church, and in the Roman Catholic Church. This Sunday is also called Christ the King. And I'm going to say a little something about why it's called Christ the King, then to say some things to you mainly about the epistle from Colossians, and then from the gospel, which seems a little bit of a downer after the Colossians reading. It's kind of, uh, seems like an odd juxtaposition. But these readings are about the nature of the kingship of Christ, the The feast or the commemoration of Christ the King is not ancient by any means. It was uh, promulgated, as they say, by Pope Pius XI in 1925. And in Italy, who was in power in 1925? Mussolini. And so Pius XI had in mind a, a, a feast or a commemoration that would remind faithful Christians that their principal allegiance is to Christ. And he would have said it in his own words as the all-embracing authority of Christ, which shall lead humankind to seek the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ. So that's kind of the, the marching orders for this festival, how we understand what that means. Christ is the messianic title for Jesus. And some Christian people treat Christ as Jesus' last name, you know, Jesus Christ. And really, uh, I like to use the term Jesus more because it roots all this in, in the humanity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So that's important. But it's also important to remind us that in the United States, kings, monarchs generally, don't loom large in our uh, personal histories. We're not just infatuated with kings, unless there's some people who like, you know, the Queen of England and uh, the uh, gossip column royalty in Monaco and things like that. But for Americans, it's probably not the best way to speak of it. And so some people are now referring to this festival as the reign of Christ. What does it mean when we speak of the reign of Christ? And these readings have something to do not only with Jesus himself, but also with our response. How do we respond to this knowledge uh, of Jesus being the principal authority in the way we understand um, the development of our own spiritual life, uh, the maturing of our humanity as we live? How do we do, uh, do that and understand what it means? In the reading from Colossians, Paul is speaking today about the nature of Jesus Christ. And he uses some imagery there that's very powerful. The first thing to say, though, is that uh, in the the end of this reading, we have embedded in the text an early baptismal hymn that was probably sung during the the, the baptismal liturgy in, in the church. And Paul is speaking about how we now grow into the image and likeness of God through the sacramental processes of the church and through saying some things about uh, this maturing process in terms of 
God's image in Jesus Christ. So in the Greek, when he speaks about this, he refers to Jesus bearing the image, the very image of God in his fullness. And so the language that's used would be like somebody minting a coin. So you have the metal and then you put the stamp on the, on the metal and you hit the stamp and it impresses in the metal the image, which is a fairly permanent image by virtue of, of the use of that process. And by extension, that's the image that we bear as well, made in God's image. And we participate in the fullness and the wisdom of God just as the Savior does. People would say, when Jesus was walking around on the earth, they would say, if God were a human being, this is what he would be like. In his words and in his works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. So we appropriate this through our baptism. And the baptismal covenant that we recite when we renew our baptismal vows and that we participate in when we celebrate baptism in the church is the template that we lay over our own spiritual life. Not all provinces of the Anglican communion have a baptismal covenant. In the older prayer books, even in our church, we did not have a baptismal covenant. And so one of the ways that people might defend that is to say, we don't have any kind of covenant with God. God is God. What do you mean a covenant? But what it means is an acknowledgement of the reciprocal nature of God's action towards us and our response. About a year before he retired, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, spoke to the House of Bishops in the United States, in New Orleans. And he said, the American baptismal covenant is a legitimate formulary in its own right, comparable to the classic authorities of scripture, tradition, and reason. And he called it the interpretive key that reveals the Episcopal Church's present understanding of the gospel. God's action and our response. So it's an important thing in the prayer book. I, I say this all the time. On Ash Wednesday, I always come into the church and I read the baptismal covenant um, to myself. And I ask the question, how have I been doing over the past year with uh, the baptismal covenant? Have I been uh, understanding it in a deeper and fuller way, trying to live into it in a deeper and fuller way, or have just not paid much attention and what might be the places where I could uh, do that? Paul says when we understand and live into the baptismal promises, we have been enabled to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is a way that we can understand the authority of Christ in our lives by, that has been accomplished in sacramental terms and we now want to see how we can understand it more broadly and more deeply. 
human beings are given, uh, and certainly in our public discourse, to black and white thinking. So it's either this or it's this. And in Christianity, particularly since the Reformation, we have had two uh, ways of understanding the presence and the power of God uh, in the lives of people. One is corporate, and the other is personal, individual, subjective. And these two things have never been completely uh, separated from one another throughout the history of Christianity, but there was a long time, and certainly our uh, religious forebears in Judaism never understood things primarily in individual terms. But when you've got yourself and your Jesus, and I might add your Bible, I may say something about that in a minute, uh, it's all about you. And I always am fascinated by uh, people who are uh, full-tilt boogie evangelicals who speak about the nature, uh, decry the moral laxity in our society and how people are too individualistic and that outlook can be traced directly back to, let's, pick, let's say, Roger Williams in the Rhode Island colony. At the end of his life, he belonged to a church that had one member, him. You know, that's what that stuff leads to. I think he excommunicated his wife. See? So you begin to think about me and my Bible and it, this is what's definitive and it's this or this when it actually could be both and, you know. It's important how you reflect about your internal states and wish to seek God and convert your ways of thinking and relating, of being and relating. So I'm not throwing cold water on the individual side of the Christian faith and life but we could do with a little bit more understanding in some places of the corporate nature of what it is that we're doing and that we're connected to, to all people. And for that reason, we have some responsibilities that, are, that demonstrate our fidelity to the baptismal covenant. I said this rather in a rather disjointed way at the, ser at the sermon at nine, but I have been watching a number of videos on YouTube uh, about a subject, uh, about something called King James Onlyism. I never knew that it existed, although the King James Bible is from our tradition as Anglican Christians. It is one of the triumphs of the English language. It is a, an amazing document. But there's a difference between saying we, we honor this as part of our tradition and saying that when we read the King James Version, it may be for many people incomprehensible in 2013 because we don't speak English that way anymore. You know? We prayed a collect about two, three weeks ago that God may always precede and follow us. And in the 1928 prayer book and in the 1662 prayer book and in the, it, it says, we pray that God may prevent and follow us. Well, prevent in 1611 meant precede. 
But you need a dictionary to be able to figure that out. So if somebody says, why don't we say proceed, because that's the use. Just so that you can amaze your friends, that process is called in translation dynamic equivalence. All right? Dynamic equivalence is picking the words in our language that best explain what is said in the other language so that we can understand it. So, when you read in the Greek text that in Matthew's Gospel, Mary was with child. When I was in seminary and first learned how to read Greek, I said, it says here, Mary's having it in the belly. That's not a very felicitous translation of, for normal English-speaking people, right? You prefer to be said in another way. So they said, no, let's say she's with child. And that's what we say, a version of that in the new revised standard version. So that's dynamic equivalence. Formal equivalence is translating everything word for word. So if there's 17 words in Greek, you get 17 words in English. And the King James Bible is, in fact, a largely formal equivalence with some wonderful dynamic equivalence because it's beautiful English. You know, there's no way to say otherwise. But it's important for us to understand these processes because in some way, then it tells us that uh, God's word has been present and meaningful in every age. And we're not being impious or interfering with the deep faith by changing the language. So when we speak about the image of God, we may wish to speak about it in a different way. One of the things Paul is talking about here is something the Eastern Church talks about all the time. The goal of the Christian life, the nature of the spiritual life, is to do is to uh, live in such a way that as we live, we become less unlike God. It's called deification in, in English. And in Greek, it's called theosis. It's the process by which we now live in a way where we live into our image. We become what we already are. That's what St. Augustine used to say uh, a long time ago. So in the gospel today, today, we have Luke's version of the crucifixion. And he is crucified between two thieves. And there is a conversation that takes place between Jesus and one of the thieves. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's one of the ways that we have as Christian people understood the kingdom. But you always need to understand those words on the cross in terms of the complete uh, understanding of everything that went before it. So the followers of Jesus came to understand that what Jesus is promising has to do with our response here. So we see repentance on the part of the thief. We see Jesus as the one who forgives us, loves us, and accepts us unconditionally. 
and we understand that those values are now to become part of the way in which each of us relate one to another in the world. And when we do that, the reign of Christ comes, even in small ways. You know, we have to keep thinking in some people's mind of a Star Trek moment where they're all going to come and we're going to have the end of the world or something like that. So I talked about this on All Saints. This is, this is important. When we have people that we love who have died and we want to know where they are, we, should, we, we, we know that they are with Jesus, resting with Jesus in paradise soon, sometime to return here. So remember the gravestones I've told you about in England? You go to the churchyard and the ones that date to about, uh, you know, 1720 and earlier. Say, David Brewer, gone, but shall return. Right? And then we got defocused and we have the the gravestones that say, David Brewer, gone home. When the whole promise of the gospel is that we will return in the great resurrection. And that's what the Savior promises everybody. And part of his authoritativeness is the reminder that we're all going to be together and are now. So uh, we describe sometimes in the old catechisms, he used to say, this is the church Uh, militant on earth the church expectant in purgatory for those who believe in purgatory and then the church triumphant in heaven so we're all at one together and we're all going to be united together one day that's the Christian hope that's what the Savior proclaimed in his teaching and in his words and in his works so what we get from the gospel is not a, a rehearsal of the, of the uh, horror of the crucifixion only. We get uh, an understanding of the Christian hope, of the presence of God, of God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. That, by the way, um, in the King James Bible, charity means love. For example, there's another word that has changed its meaning over time. So, in a lot of the contemporary translations, it's translated as God's love. So this week, think how you can be part of uh, bringing here the values of the reign of Christ. What is it that you can do and have done in order for that to be so? Have you looked around and seen any examples of human behavior where it clearly godly, clearly reflects uh, the presence and the power of Christ in the world, maybe not even in specifically religious terms, maybe in terms of the way in which we have created a kinder and gentler culture, you know, where it's easier for people to be good. That's an important thing. So give thanks to God for participating in that kind of kingship. Amen.